Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Denise Hai, an Army veteran and Bronze Star recipient for notorious achievement during the Persian Gulf War. Denise is also a wife and mother, has a strong connection to her faith and community, and a love for culture and languages. Denise, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. This is an honor for me to be included. I've um, listened to some of the other podcasts and are just amazed at these, these wonderful women that you've interviewed and given me the opportunity to meet through your podcast. So thank you. You're very welcome. And what's so special about today is that your husband connected us, and he's been such an advocate for this podcast and connected me to so many incredible women, including you. So I'm really hearing your story for the first time along with the audience today. So start us off by where you're from originally and your origin story into the military. Well, I'm, I was a Navy brat, so I grew up pretty much all over, but my family's always been from Texas. You know, we've been in Texas since the 1830s, so a long time. Um, and that's always been considered home for me. It always will be, I'm afraid, no matter where I live. But my dad being Navy and, and living all over, I had that exposure to that lifestyle. So it wasn't like a foreign idea when I started thinking about enlisting myself. Uh, but it I was kind of unusual in that I was a college option in. So I had already been adulting for eight, you know, almost 10 years when I enlisted and had my BA. And the reason why I enlisted was I wanted to change. I was sick and tired of working in an office and I wanted to do something very different. And I wanted to go to DLI. So I thought that I was going to, that was my path. I was going to go to DLI. And how did you get introduced to DLI? You know, I don't even remember. Um, I was working in direct mail marketing at the time, and one of our clients was a retired Air Force colonel who had a group of his uh, veteran members from his um, last organization, his last command in the Air Force. And I think I read an article in his newsletter while we were processing it one month that mentioned DLI. Oh, interesting. Uh, He certainly was a wonderful advocate for me. He wrote a letter of reference for me so I could go before the board for OCS. So you grew up in the Navy, but you joined the Army. Uh, yeah, that was kind of a sore point with my dad for a really long time. <laughs> he didn't like that I enlisted, period. Um, but he did not talk to me for over a year because I was going Army. He was reconciled when I graduated OCS, and he got to give me my first salute and you know, receive that silver dollar that you give out when you get your first salute. You know, it all worked out in the long run. But yeah, that was a sore point. I just didn't feel like I could take the Navy. It's the the close quarters. My dad was never a Blue Water Navy. He was a CB, so it was always shore-based. And I just knew that that was not going to be the life for me. I don't like the water that much. (laughs) And then growing up in an Air Force town, San Antonio, don't be offended. (laughs) But I grew up with that inter-service rivalry, that that understanding that... uh, you know, the Air Force was the, the snotty service, the rich service. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't really fight. They weren't real warriors. That was the attitude that, that I grew up around mm-hmm. and didn't realize I had absorbed it to that extent. But I never even really considered the Air Force, even though the guy that introduced me to DLI was Air Force, <laughs> you know. Um, and I'm afraid we kind of passed that on to our son, too, growing up, again, without even thinking about it and joking, because... I have the deepest respect for the friends I know who served in the Air Force. And yet my son wouldn't even consider it when he was, you know, that was his path. When he graduated high school, he was in the process of enlisting. 
and he was going army just like mom and dad. <laughs> yeah. So my background is, you know, but uh, for people who may just be listening to this particular episode as I grew up in the army, I'm talking born in Fort Sill, moved every two years. So having that exposure to the army, I, in the culture of the army, and this was in the eighties, was the Air Force was the softer service. It was not, quote unquote, the real military. But um, when I did start looking at enlisting, I wanted to do something just totally different. And I wasn't joining the the Air Force because I thought it was, quote unquote, softer. I just, uh, it just seemed like a better fit for my personality. So I, I understand a little bit of that. Well, you know, I was really glad once I finally started going through the, the um, MEPS process uh, because I found out that Air Force requires had had different physical requirements mm-hmm. and different IQ requirements. The Air Force IQ requirements were, you know, way up here compared to the Army, and you had to be able to lift. I think it was 50 pounds up, well over your head, yeah. to shove it into the back of like a C-130 or something <laughs> ridiculous. And I knew I couldn't do that. I was never very physical or athletic, so I the 50 pounds up to get it into the back of a deuce and a half that I could do, <laughs> but way up over my head, way beyond my ability. So it all works out. You enlisted and then got commissioned. How long was that process? How long were you enlisted before you commissioned? My MOS was actually officer candidate. Oh, okay. So I enlisted to go to OCS. So I went through basic training at Fort Jackson, eight weeks. And as long as that is successfully completed, you're automatically promoted to an E5 at that point and sent to OCS to Fort Benning, Georgia for OCS. At least that's the way it worked when I went in in 1988. <laughs> and what was your undergrad? Um, I was I had a BA in French and uh, like three credit, credits short of a minor in Russian. So that, that makes sense, the fit of the DLI, uh, Defense Language Institute, being in your uh, on your radar then. If I could have gotten, I never even had the, chan- the chance to apply. You know, this was one of the things that I found out after while I was at basic training, actually, <laughs> was that as an officer, it's not like you can just go to DLI. Your unit has to send you. And normally, an officer is not going to have the opportunity to do that until they're a senior captain when they're getting into their specialty after they've done all the basics for their branch. So, yeah, I was looking at a good 10 years down the road before I would have been able to go to DLI. So there were several crossroads in my my career in the military, and that was the first big hurdle for me was, you know, what do I do? Um, I'm I'm on this track now to become an officer. I'm not going to get to DLI like I thought I was, at least not easily. Um, do I want to stay the course? And, of course, I decided to do it to finish out. And If I hadn't, I would have been... A, a very uncomfortable creek without a paddle because um, if I didn't complete OCS, then I get thrown back into the Army and whatever the Army wants me to do as an E3. <laughs> right. So you graduated from OCS and then what was your next step? Then we go to Signal Officer Basic. I had been branched Signal, which was another surprise because I kind of thought with my scores on the D Lab and, you know, my background and the fact that every application, every piece of paper I filled out for the Army from day one, I want an overseas assignment, I want to, I want to use my languages, that kind of thing. I thought that, that I was going to be, get MI. I really did. Um, and it, you know, the Army and their infinite wisdom, as, as we all know, military in general, they're very good at putting square pegs into round holes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I got to go signal and went to Fort Gordon for signal officer basic. And then from there, I actually went to Fort Sill. 
uh, your hometown. I spent uh, several months in the middle of the middle of winter, 20, 20 degrees below zero was like our goal. We wanted to do, if we got to 20 degrees below zero, we didn't have to go out and do PT. So everybody was Ugh. checking the weather at 4.30 in the morning going, please, 20 below, 20 below. It was enough times that I didn't get much physical training in, at Fort Sill. Uh, but that was for the Brigade and Battalion Signal Officers Corps. And what year was this? Uh, let's see, that was 1989. And then I went to Germany. That was my first duty station in January of 90 and was assigned to the, the battalion S3, um, the five corps signal unit, um, their brigade. I was in a battalion of that brigade. So it's a core level signal unit. And I was supposed to take a platoon, just like every you know brand new butter bar, but they didn't have any position available. So I went into the, to the battalion S3 and was doing a lot of plans and training. The battalion was building new equipment, new doctrine, new everything. Um, so it was a fun, challenging time. I got, to, I got to learn a lot and grow a lot. And you were stationed at Frankfurt? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at the time, were you married? Nope, nope. That's actually where I met my husband. In July of 90, the Frankfurt mayor gave a dinner for the American military in Frankfurt. And I went because I had to. I was the, you know, low man on the totem pole in my unit. So I was forced to go. And my husband went because it was free food, free wine, free beer, German beer. (laughs) You know, he's not missing out on that. So we happened to sit at the same table and the rest is history. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Howard went through, your husband went through DLI. Yes. So that was our, our immediate bond was over Russia. And we were sitting there at our, at, singing Russian songs and quoting Russian poetry to each other. And that was our, our immediate connection. What are the odds of that happening? That's pretty incredible. Astronomical, right? <laughs> right? And to top it all off, when I was in high school, I had wanted to do, I always felt very drawn to the Japanese culture. And I had wanted to, my plan was to study Japanese and Chinese. I wanted to do a communist country in addition to a free world country. And I wanted to go to the University of Hawaii. I was born in Hawaii, Navy brat, right? And I just couldn't make it work from a financial standpoint. I just couldn't make it happen. And I ended up staying in Texas and instead studying French and Russian. So what are the odds indeed that, you know, a decade later, I would meet a Japanese man who has a lot of connections in China with Chinese um, people and good friends who were Chinese and who uh, happens to be a Russian linguist and whose sister married a Frenchman. (laughs) Wow, I'm shaking my head. This all happened organically before the internet existed, before you could like meet people socially or connect through like a Facebook page or... Talk about God bringing things full circle, right? (laughs) I love these stories. Um, My dad was stationed at Frankfurt at that same time. I went to high school in Frankfurt, 91 to 94. Has probably crossed. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure they did. So um, tell me a little bit about your deployment to Southwest Asia. Well, Seven Corps went when the, the balloon went up, so to speak, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Seven Corps was tapped on the shoulder to deploy, uh, mainly because they were being drawn down. So rather than shipping all their equipment like to Diego Garcia or someplace like that, they were, they were just shipped through Southwest Asia um, en route home, basically. And my division, um, my, my battalion had just fielded the new communications equipment that the Army was, was putting out, mobile subscriber equipment, MSE. And we 
partnered with one of the, the subordinate divisions of the Corps, Five Corps, the Third Armor Division, while they fielded this brand new communications equipment, because of course, Corps headquarters has to be able to talk to the subordinate division. So as they fielded the new equipment, we partnered with their signal battalion and went through that fielding with them. And then Seven Corps said they wanted an armor division and they needed one. And Third Armor Division got tapped. And as soon as they did, the signal, the signal battalion commander said, I want that core, I want our, the, our company that trained with us to go. I'm, I was, had taken a book in that brand new company. So that's kind of how that involved chain of command, that, that chain of events worked there. So th- this is during the Persian Gulf War. Right. Mm-hmm. I had just taken my platoon uh, the first week of August in 90 when Saddam Hussein invaded and we started you know, ramping up, sending people and material over there. I found out we were going through brand new fielding, you know, training and, and building this brand new equipment in a brand new company. Normally, when you take a platoon, it's an existing unit. And most of the people, two thirds of the people have been there for a couple of years, right? And they, everybody already knows their jobs and you're just kind of sliding into a slot. Um, but taking over a brand new a platoon that had just been filled with people that were pulled from all over the the core was a very interesting experience and one I'm so glad that I got to to have um, mainly because I had some wonderful NCOs I had some outstanding senior NCOs who really made it all work and pulled everybody together into a team and they did it very quickly because we only had a few months we did the training got the equipment we were actually in the field testing the equipment out when we got the word that we had been tapped to go to deploy. Um, we still had to go through a final FTX and then ship all the equipment out. So we, over the space of like three months, this platoon gels into a unit that can do its job in a wartime situation. It was really breathtaking to be part of that and to watch those NCOs do what they do and do so well. What were some of your responsibilities with that? I was a nodal communication site commander. Basically, each platoon under MSC had a nodal communication site. So there was you know, multi-million dollars worth of equipment and on average about 40 personnel on the site. With my site, when we actually kicked off to invade into Iraq, um, the battalion system control center was was co-located with me. So my site was tripled in size. Basically, it was site defense, managing the personnel and equipment, making sure comm shots stayed in and, and that people, that the division was able to communicate to core headquarters as they moved across the, the line into Iraq and beyond. It was a fast-paced three days. <laughs> the, the division kicked ass and took names for three days. It was amazing. Were there other women with you? I had three females in my platoon um, that were on the site with me. That was It was a 58-person platoon, and so there were three females. And that was kind of a shock because, of course, when I went through basic just a couple of years before, it was not co-educational. I was in an all-female platoon. OCS was different. That was co-ed, but the women still roomed together. Even though we were in the same building, we were still separate in some, some regard. We had our own, you know, all of that. And then you deploy and it's like all out the window, you know, the girls are integrated in their teams and they're living in a tent with their team and finding ways to make that work, you know, to have a little bit of privacy when they need it. I mean, when I packed, I packed a half a duffel of feminine hygiene products, for example, 
because you knew when we were going to have access to those. Mm-hmm. Finding ways to just stay clean in the field when there's no showers. You know, normally for an FTX, it's not that big of a deal. You're only going to be out there for a week at most. And, you know, if you really need to, you can always get to a, a place, a shower, find some way to get clean. And there you are in the middle of the desert and you've got really no options except what you brought with you. I had baby wipes and feminine hygiene products in my duffel. Mm-hmm. Just one of the little things people don't really think about when they sign up. Of course, when you when you enlist, you don't think about the fact that you might actually deploy mm-hmm. and and need to make these these decisions and considerations. So it was glorious and it was scary as hell. I can only imagine <laughs> because again, that was right before the internet didn't exist and there was just communication was so different. And were the women that were with you, the three women, mothers? No, they were all single. Yeah, they're very young. You know, I was old for a second lieutenant. I was 20. I was very old. I was 28. So everybody in my platoon felt like a youngster to me, except my platoon sergeants. What did your parents think of that when you got deployed over to the Persian Gulf? I mean, your dad being... They, they'd had time to uh, adjust to the fact that I was wearing the uniform. And, and they knew what to expect. You know, it's not like my dad. My dad had an amazing career in the Navy. He did two tours in Vietnam. Um, my mom had been there before. She knew... She knew what it was going to be like. The only real difference between what my dad experienced and what I experienced was, number one, the reception when he got home. He was treated like dirt. And I was welcomed back to Germany with open arms, right? They had a big party for us. And and the communication. Um, We had reporters embedded with the Corps. There were constant reports going back. I know they were live streaming 24-7 coverage of what was going on over there. So even though my parents didn't know where I was, they knew I was with 3rd Armor Division, so they could pretty much follow what was going on. It was um, some ways easier and in some ways harder. And I wonder about that today. You know, these troops that are over there that are constantly able to communicate back home over Facebook and Internet phone calls. And Mm -hmm. does that really make it easier? for them and for their families. I don't know. I, to me, I don't think it would. Uh, I had another girlfriend I that we discussed this with on a podcast and she said the same thing. And she's actually stationed overseas as a civilian now. She's retired, but she had the same uh, comment that of course there's plus and minuses to all of it, but it's almost, you can be almost too tethered to, to both worlds. Did you, uh, were you able to benefit from care packages coming in? Oh my goodness. Not just me, my whole platoon, my mom, like I said, she knew the drill, right? And several times, uh, we were only over there for five months, but at least three times I got a huge box full of cookies because I told her, don't just send me for me. I can't, if you do, I'm not going to be able to eat it. If you're going to send it, you're going to have to bake for the entire platoon. <laughs> so she would send a huge box with packages, three cookies to a little package, Uh-oh. packed in popcorn. Yep. And then I'd put it out at the mess hall. I'd take, I, I had extension teams that were out with some of the, the subordinate units in the division. So I had to put some aside for them. But then we put the big box out there in the mess hall and everybody could take a package as they went by uh, for chow. So it was, my mom was amazing. Talk about good support. <laughs> and those are so meaningful. I, I've been on both sides of it to receive a care package like that before the internet existed. I went in in 95. And then, um, and although I didn't deploy, I was with a, a musical group that went around the world performing and we performed at remote locations. But just to get, you know, the mail would come maybe a month later to us. They would 
project when we were going to be somewhere and then our mail would get sent in a bundle. And when growing up in the military, my mom did the same thing. We would make care packages for people we didn't even know, but it was it still felt like family. So I know how meaningful that was. It, it was just amazing. I always felt kind of guilty because I was I got more mail than anybody in my platoon every time we had mail call um, because Howard, by then we were engaged and he was writing me every day, which I don't know how he found the time to do because he had just taken his company command. Mm. And, but just amazing, even if it was just a few lines, I got something from him every day. And my parents, my sisters and my brother, they were always writing. My coworkers, former coworkers in the civilian world were were writing. Uh, In fact, one of my bosses had a big map put up in the conference room and they were tracking where they thought I was in the Middle East (laughs) based on the news reports. Talk about support. I mean, you just feel overwhelmed and so humbled that people care enough to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I could see that it always made a difference to the soldiers that didn't have that type of support and communication to be able to go Mm -hmm. through and pick up that package of homemade chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) It made their day, made them smile. So when you you were deployed for five months, then you came back to Germany. What was that adjustment like? It was really easy for me because I had a job waiting for me after I, when I got off the plane, I had orders to report to brigade for staff duty at the Brigade S3. So I didn't have any downtime. The platoon actually had like a month where they were still waiting for their equipment to come in. There wasn't a lot they could do. They were given, I think it was two weeks off completely. And then another two weeks where they were on very limited duty. They basically just had to show them. But I was already at brigade, at brigade at work. So part of what I was doing was writing the standard operating procedures. You know, like I said, we had just filled in this new equipment. Um, it, it had been deployed for the first time in combat. And the doctrine that was written to accompany it when we fielded it was not the doctrine under which it was deployed in the field. It would looked very different when we deployed it in the desert um, than what they had anticipated it would be used for. So we were rewriting the doctrine for this new equipment. So help this Air Force girl out. What does it mean that you took brigade? So at the core level, the Corps will have a brigade that is their signal unit. And the brigade will contain battalions that actually go to the subordinate units within the Corps and provide the communications between the Corps and its subordinate units. Each subordinate unit will also have its own signal battalion that's providing communications within that subordinate unit. So I initially deployed to or took a job in a battalion, a core level battalion, which was a subordinate unit of the signal brigade for the Corps, for five Corps. And then when I came back from Southwest Asia, I was working at the brigade instead of the battalion level. You did such a great job while you were deployed that when you came back, you were awarded the Bronze Star. Can you talk about that? Um, It's a bronze star for meritorious achievement, and it was not my achievement. It was my platoons. (laughs) We were blessed all the way around. When we deployed our equipment and first started testing our equipment, we were called, the battalion called us the note from hell because we were down more than we were up. We just had all kinds of switch gremlins that were affecting our equipment. But everybody in the platoon, because of this issue, Everybody in the platoon got all this wonderful training. I mean, GE, the General Electric, was the one that manufactured the equipment. Their tech reps sat in my platoon. They camped out with my node during those initial weeks. Yes, it was hard. And and yes, we hated being made fun of by every other unit in the battalion. But um, it was so valuable. It was just incredible. 
how much value that experience, that whole experience brought to us. It was hard to keep morale up, but once we got through it, man, nobody could beat us. Nobody could touch us. We never lost comms while we were in Southwest Asia, not once. The whole network would go down and my node would still be up because my switch guys had gotten so much training that they recognized problems and troubleshot them and corrected them before they even brought it, you know, affected anything. Yeah, it was, I, like I said, I had a wonderful platoon. I had a lot of good soldiers and some outstanding NCOs. I love that you are inclusive of everybody that participated in that. Well, it's not really my award. I, like I said, I really did very little. I was there to interface between those good soldiers and mm. their higher headquarters. And fortunately, and I thank God for this every day, I never had to do, you know, I had to implement like a site defense plan, never had to use it, thankfully. That was my, my biggest fear when we deployed was that somebody would get hurt, that I would screw up and somebody would die. You know, there were opportunities there, but I really felt like God watched mm. over us and answered my prayer and kept everybody safe. Not everybody healthy. We had some issues, but everybody made it home. Such a blessing to be able to say that. Amen to that. So you get back to Germany, you take brigade, and you reunite with Howard, and then what? Right. We were married uh, within five weeks after I came back, <laughs> and then waited about a month before we took our honeymoon, waited until he was towards the end of his command. He was getting ready to change command in his company. And came back home and introduced each other to our families and had the standing reception, one in California with his family and one in Texas with mine. By the time we got back from that trip, I just knew I was pregnant. And the Army had started doing what the Army always does after a wartime deployment. They started drawing down. So the opportunity came up. They were offering early outs. Because I had taken an overseas assignment, I really had a four-year commitment after I finished all of my training. But because they were drawing down and looking to cut costs, they offered the option that I could get out early if I wanted to. There were a lot of factors involved in making that decision. I wasn't really happy about it. I, I would have loved to have stayed in and had a company command. Everybody always says that's the best job in the Army. <laughs> and I believed them and wanted so much to, to have that experience, that learning experience. But between knowing I wasn't going to get to DLI, which was really why I enlisted to begin with, and being pretty sure, even though it was very early on, that I was pregnant and having just returned from a deployment and knowing that I would never want to leave my baby to go on another deployment, why I didn't, I didn't feel like I had any right to keep wearing the uniform. You know, if I wasn't willing to do the job, it's a 24-7 job. You know that. You wore the uniform. I wasn't willing and able to commit to that 24-7 job. I didn't feel like I should, I should stay in. So I took the early out option. And I've ne really never regretted it. You know, sometimes you like to play what-if games and wonder what would have happened if you had stayed in and, you know, kept going with that career. But my kids being the, the, the people they are and the opportunities that God gave me after I got out, it was definitely the right decision. I admire the women that are parents and soldiers, sailors, airmen, you know, I, I admire them that they can do that. It wasn't, it wasn't for me. When I commit 24-7, I commit 24-7. And wife and mother is 24-7 enough <laughs> for me. Yeah, for me, getting out was the right decision also. Um, I was in an 
obviously a different situation. I didn't have a family. It was just me, but it was also gearing up towards the invasion of Iraq and seeing casualties in the summer of 03 coming from uh, downrange to Ramstein with awful injuries. I knew everything was going to get worse before it got better. And now looking back, those 12 years I would have stayed in to hit retirement I could not have foreseen that we would still be at war in those 12 years. And even now, after as long as I've been out, that we're still at war with no end in sight. But sometimes I'll talk to my girlfriends who've retired and I'll romanticize having the pension. <laughs> but having been out since 2003, I know that that was the best choice for me was to separate and do something different especially for you with the pace of deployments that has continued since 2003. You know, I, I held on to my commission. I refused to resign it um, for almost a decade because I was just so sure that the kids would eventually get old enough that I would feel comfortable and I could find a reserve unit and I could you know, go, get back into it. But uh, eventually I realized I, my kids were never going to be old enough. I mean, my daughter's 28. She's still not old enough <laughs> for me to go on a deployment, right? <laughs> So I, I did eventually resign my commission. Um, and part of the, the reason that that, that drove that was seeing that the pace of deployments was going to pick up and that the reserves were going to start being activated um, in a way they had never been in our past. Oh, yes. Um, so it was it was the definitely part of the decision. Mm-hmm. So when you you took the early out, Howard stayed in. Right. At that point, um, had he deployed at all? No, no. Okay, um, but you remained in Germany, so you were able to stay in Germany, right? Um, I got out. I, I, I yeah, I out processed in Frankfurt, um, and we had had our actually the month. My daughter was a month old when I finished out processing. Oh wow! Um, but Howard was still in and still working hard. Um, his career, because he was a senior captain, was already pretty much mapped out. We knew that when we left Germany, we were going to Kansas to grad school. He was going to spend a year and a half there in grad school. He was going to be a foreign area officer with Russian specialty. And after he left Kansas, we would be going to Moscow. I mean, it was, or no, we would be going to Germany to Garmisch for a year. And then he would go to Moscow as a foreign area officer. So we knew this was all already mapped out, but then living in Kansas and, and enjoying that civilian life and getting a, a good, you know, his avocation is martial arts, getting that martial arts dojo going there that's still going so strong. It's been a wonderful um, part of his martial arts organization. He just decided it was time for him to get out to. Plus, you know, the wall had fallen. <laughs> Russian communism was not the threat that it had been in the past. I think he was kind of let down, you know, didn't feel like his skills were going to be as needed. And he was ready to, to try civilian life for a little while. So that ended that <laughs> until he went to DOD and, and got his job in DOD as a civilian. And then how long had he been in when he had the option to early out? 14 years. So for him, it wasn't an early out. It was a matter of basically they paid out his retirement benefits to him that he had accrued up to that point. Um, And he actually pulled a Denise. When I enlisted, I didn't tell anybody. Nobody knew until I'd done the the deal, signed the paperwork. And then I broke it to my family because I knew that they would try to talk me out of it. And I, you know, I didn't want to be swayed by their arguments. Howard did the same thing to me when he decided to get out. 
he, he made the decision on his own, put in the paperwork, and then told me, guess what? We're not going to Garmisch. <laughs> we're not going to Moscow. Uh-uh. uh-uh. I'm getting out and we're, we're going to figure it out. How did that go over? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I tried to be, I, 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 as a military brat, I was perfectly ready to be a dependent military spouse Mm -hmm. for as long he only had six years left to retirement I was ready I could do it um it wasn't phased at all I'm looking forward to Garmisch it's a resort for crying out loud that would have been a fun year and then um seeing all of our old friends in Germany I I was really looking forward to that Moscow afterwards not so much because you know I knew I was going to have to have my family ship us little things like toilet paper (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I I had the Russian I had a little bit of Russian. I knew I would pick it up again and it would be restored to my memory quickly once I was there. So I was looking forward to that too. (laughs) And it kind of felt like the rug had been pulled out from under my feet, you know, but it was very quick to realize, you know, maybe it's a good thing that we're not making these moves with two infants, (laughs) that I'm not going to be in Russia when my daughter's ready to start kindergarten. Probably a good thing that we're going to be here. It all worked out. God is good. It all worked out. (laughs) So dialing back just a little bit, um, you had the three women who deployed with you. Did you have any women in the upper leadership? Not at the battalion, no. And it was kind of a problem because um, the battalion commander that I had, not the battalion that I was attached to and deployed with, but the battalion commander that I was actually um, part of had been airborne and had never worked with females, had never had any females in his chain of command until he took that battalion command. And he had a, a, an, a little bit of an attitude about females in the military. So my raider, I remember my battalion S3 that I was working for before I took my platoon. When he raided me, he actually told me, do not expect to be top blocked by this battalion commander as my senior raider, do not expect it because he's going to go with a guy and he's really watching his rating profile carefully. So he's not going to top lock a female. Wow. Mm-hmm. Didn't bother me a bit. You know, I think there were probably many incidents over the course of that four years that I was active duty where I came face to face with that kind of an attitude, but it just, I ignored it. It never bothered me and it didn't bother me then. I wasn't concerned about my senior raider's profile <laughs> or what my senior raider might or might not do. I just wanted to do a good job. I wanted to know in my heart that I was doing, doing my best and learning and growing into the position and, and the authority that the military mm-hmm. had given me. Mm-hmm. It always felt like a weighty responsibility to have those, those decisions, make those decisions that affected so many lives. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Denise. So going back to Kansas City and Howard retiring and opening a dojo studio, is that something that you also got involved with? In terms of, do you have a background in martial arts? No, no, just um, to the extent that I was helping him keep books and do administrative stuff. I did try. It was kind of hard because I got pregnant so quickly. We started our family so quickly. That's not the way it was supposed to happen. That wasn't the plan, right? My plan, but God had a different plan in mind. Um, So I did try it after the kids got old enough that they were doing it too. But I felt like the Pillsbury Doughboy in that (laughs) ghee. 
And I've just like I've never been very athletic. I was I was I'm not coordinated. I have two left feet. I you know Howard will never take me dancing because it's painful for him. <laughs> Literally painful. I I just didn't feel like I was measuring up to his. I didn't want to I didn't want to embarrass him in front of all of his other white belts. <laughs> the little seven and eight year olds, you know. Here's this thirty something woman. <laughs> who can't even do half of what they can do as seven-year-olds. I asked, I mean, obviously it's your husband starting this business, but also it's got the same principles of the military with the discipline and, uh, you know, there's a quote-unquote rank structure with the belts, right. the bit of the physicality and being in the army, doing PT, which reminds me that's one big reason why I didn't join the army. <laughs> my hey, dad, you didn't have to do PT in the Air Force? <laughs> Not to the extent of waking up every day and, uh, you know, for, you know, having to run in formation, my dad constantly watching him do that, wake up early and just, it broke him down. His body physically broke him down. I, yeah, I do agree. And with all the gear on, it didn't look appealing to me. I did it on my own. There's something about doing it on your own and being forced to do it. Yeah, it's that self-determination theory in, in psychology. Yeah, it is easier to motivate yourself when you are in control. And I can relate to um, starting a program like that you feeling like in your thirties and starting off with these white belts, I started tap dancing like in my mid thirties in New York city with all these Broadway babies, literal six and seven year olds who are on Broadway, just tap dancing, picking up combinations, killing Mm -hmm. the choreography in class. And I'm there with these little beginner, you know, I'm in my thirties next to these kids. And I'm just like (laughs) the most humbling thing ever yeah. to really push yourself out of your comfort zone. I, I totally relate to that. Do you still do the tap dancing? I don't now. Uh, it's a little challenging with COVID. I do have my tap shoes and I still, you know, when I'm waiting in line mm-hmm. at a grocery store or something, I, uh, I'll do a little, a little break or something. Do a little beat. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's always been there because even when I was in the military, I would do it in my combat boots and I'd be in the lab shuffling my feet and my NCOs would get so irritated with me. They'd be like, stop it. That's a safety hazard. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, I remember marching in OCS. You know, we had to march everywhere. I, I, I remember being told by some of the TAC officers, quit bouncing around. You know, I was just walking normally, but as a woman, you t- you move your hips a little yes. different. So all that equipment on your LBE is moving a little different. And they're like, you know, you know, calm down, take longer, smoother strides, quit bouncing. (laughs) Oh yeah. You're totally taking me back. I heard all the same things. That's so funny. All right. So you're in Kansas city. Howard gets out to go to grad school and did you just stay there for the year and a half? Uh, No, uh, we actually ended up settling there. You know, when he got out, we had so many options before us and it just seemed like everything was coming together that Kansas city was a perfect location to open a dojo. And it did work out very well. You know, his club there, like I said, is still growing strong, going strong. And it's one of the the best in, in the organization, which is an international organization, you know, in 120 different countries. It was a wonderful place to raise a family. But I had to laugh when my kids, you know, when we moved from Kansas City to New Jersey, when Howard got his job with DOD and we were at Fort Monmouth in New Jersey, the kids were 12 and 13. Katya was just starting high school and Lincoln was starting eighth grade and they complained to their friends about all their moves and all the changes that they've had to go through. And then when we moved to Maryland, they started it up again. And I'm like, wait a minute, you've had two moves in your life. Do you realize as a military brat, I was never in the same school twice 
in one year, I would usually have just the way we ended up working it with my dad's Navy um, deployments. I was in two different schools every year until seventh grade. Oh, wow. And seventh grade was when they finally found the ranch and settled. And I was able to go to the same school from the end of seventh grade through my senior year of high school. I understand that. I, uh, I went to three high schools and I moved in the middle of my senior year. Oh, no, I take that back. I moved in the middle of my freshman year and then started a new school my senior year. And by that time, you're at a senior. All those cliques have been formed and relationships are there. And I just that's actually why I joined the Air Force. I was like, I have to get out of this place. It was Fort Rucker, Alabama. Oh, wow. (laughs) My dad got stationed at Fort Rucker from Germany. And I was like, you brought us from Germany to here? But then he immediately did a deployment to Haiti like on a medical mission. And I was like, wait a minute, you moved us here and you get to leave? Not that Haiti was that much better than Fort Rucker, Alabama. Yeah, of course not. But you know, when you're a senior in high school and you're so selfish, it's all about you. You're not thinking about what my dad's sleeping in a tent in Haiti. You're helping me sympathize a little more with my son, who was such a good kid, just such a light to everyone that he knew. But, you know, we moved him from New Jersey to Maryland at the beginning of the senior year. (laughs) Oh, I feel his struggle. Yeah, not like we had a choice. You know, Monmouth was closing. You move where the job is. Um, But I'm afraid I was not very sympathetic because I'm like, look, I have moved 28, 29 times in my life. This is number 29. Get over yourself, kid. (laughs) You're making me feel bad that I wasn't more sympathetic. No, no, don't feel bad. We're doing the best we can in those moments. So um, with Howard working for the DOD, do you have the experience of Howard being recognized as being the veteran and you're overlooked? Or do you ever talk about your service in the Army to other people? I don't talk about it. Um, So, you know, every now and again, uh, they'll do something like at church on Veterans Day, you know, stand up if you're a veteran so we can honor you. And of course, I'm the only woman in the room standing And I'll have people come up afterwards and say, I didn't know you were a veteran. Tell me about it. You know, but I've never had any real negative other than one friend saying, how come you never told me? And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Come up and introduce myself. I'm Denise. I'm an army veteran. (laughs) That doesn't quite work for me. Um, But yeah, they, I never had a bad experience or any negative feedback. I think I remember you talking about an experience in the Lowe's parking lot. Yeah. The uh, Lowe's has a veteran parking spot. And I'm like, this is awesome, especially in Los Angeles, where there's a shortage of parking anyway. So it's just, I'm taking advantage of it. And uh, someone questioned me about it, basically accused me of stolen valor, because I don't quote unquote, look like a veteran, whatever that means. Yeah, I don't know how they make that determination. It's their, their own bias. And, you know, just, I thought you handled that beautifully, though, if I remember right, you said, what does a veteran look like, you know, and you were very calm about it. And- Thanks. I- Thank you. I think it's a great opportunity to have a conversation. You know, I'm not, I'm never going to attack or get accusatory or pounce on someone. It's just a great opportunity to say, well, what does a veteran look like to you? Or why wouldn't you think I'm a veteran? Or yeah, I did serve in the military. So um, that's remarkable. Kudos to you. A lot of people don't know what a veteran is. They think it means you, you know, they, they expect you to tell them that they had your 20 or 30 year career. In fact, I had that at the DMV when they, when here in Maryland, you know, they, they let you bring your DD-214 in and they started putting that little veteran's note on, on the uh, driver's license. 
And so when I took that in to do it, I can remember the woman sitting behind the desk going, if you didn't do, if you didn't retire at 20 years, you can't be a veteran. And I said, well, here's my DD-214. In fact, I have two DD-214s because I had to be released as an NC, as an E-5 before I could take my commission. So I have a DD-214 as an E-5 and a DD-214 as a, as a first lieutenant. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know they did that. I can whip out whichever one of those I want. <laughs> do you still keep in touch with any of the, the women that you served with? Yes, I do still keep in touch with one. Um, another lieutenant in the core level battalion, signal battalion. Uh, she's married and, and got out not too long after I did. She married an Englishman and then came home to her family's farm in Ohio. But she's the only one. If a young woman were to come up to you today and say that she wanted to join the military, what would you say to her? I have actually had that conversation with several. Um, my daughters, but, you know, um, at one time or another have talked about it. Um, some of the protégés that we've had here in Maryland, especially as the kids got older and their friends started thinking about their future, we'd had the opportunity to interact with them about um, that option for their future. And I told all of them the same thing, go Air Force, go Air Force. <laughs> because the, the, the standard of living is so much higher. You know, the, the Navy just has the lowest standard of living. The Army is, is adequate and, and wonderful. But still, the Air Force, everybody knows they have the best bases, the cleanest bases, the best commissaries. And I've shopped at all, all of them. So I know as a Navy brat and an Army veteran that living in an Air Force town, my, my folks are retired right outside of San Antonio. So they still go to the commissary there at Randolph Air Force Base. Um, there is no comparison. Air Force is the way to go <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking for a good standard of living. Have any of these uh, young ladies taken you up on your advice? Uh, they tried. One of them tried. Um, she kind of kind of got sidetracked. Keeping my fingers crossed for her that things work out. My daughter was talking Marines for a while. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Growing up with a dad who told me that I would date a Marine over his dead body. And of course, my first boyfriend was a Marine. <laughs> Had to be. <laughs> Your daughter must love a challenge. Yeah. And that's exactly why she was thinking about it. Same reason that my son army and and never even considered air force despite the fact that i tried to talk him into it i, I kind of wish we hadn't influenced him that way <laughs> it worked against me it always comes back to bite you <laughs> <laughs> well your daughter does have the experience of saying that she was born overseas and she has that story she right. was born in germany <laughs> uh but she's not german and then she gets to tell the military story where i get to say I was born in fort sill <laughs> but I'm not from Oklahoma. And then I have to go through this whole thing. So she's got that. Story. Where were you from originally? I say I'm an army brat. I was born in Fort Sill. My, we moved to Germany. My sister was born in Stuttgart. We moved to Virginia. My brother was born in Fort Lee. Then we went to Fort Lewis, West Point. My dad went to grad school in Alabama. So we were quote unquote civilian for two years. Then Frankfurt, Fort Rucker. And then I enlisted. I mean, so... Like you were saying, I moved like every two years growing up. And then the longest I ever lived anywhere was 10 years. And that's when I got out of the Air Force. So I was 28 and I moved to Vegas. And somehow it ended up being 10 years. And then I felt that kind of like need to change it up. And then I moved to New York and 
now to LA and LA has been the second longest place I've lived anywhere four and a half years. So when someone asks me where I'm from, it's like, no, I'm not really from anywhere. Sometimes I'll say Vegas because it's where I live the longest, but I'm I'm just, I'm from all over the place, but I'm grateful for those experiences because it helps me to connect with so many people and it's allowed for us to have a great conversation today. Um, I mean, we're really connecting for the first time to record this podcast and we were able to easily connect about our backgrounds. So I want to thank you again for joining me today and sharing your experiences with me. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share. You know, I think we had talked earlier about the fact that it's not that easy. You know, there's not that many women that have served. And even so, it's not, it's just not easy to share those military experiences. Most people just simply don't get it. You know, I love hearing about your time. It was a total, a whole decade behind me there or late, you know, after me. So it's a totally different army in 2003 than it was in 1990. Exactly. And that's another reason why I wanted to do a podcast is to hear how the military has evolved through the service of women. And there are so many more stories to discover and learn from. So this podcast is going to be around for a while. (laughs) Uh, Denise, thank you again. Well, thank you for, for giving me the opportunity and for sharing your story too. It's been an amazing conversation and I appreciate you and appreciate what you're doing. And thank you for listening. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year.